Just a quick announcement, there's still space available on my nature sketching trip of South Africa from September 26th to October 9th. We're going to be visiting lots of amazing places in the Western Cape and doing a safari in Kruger National Park with an amazing driver. It's going to be a slow-paced general nature tour. Non-sketchers also very welcome. If you like amazing scenery, fine wines and good food in the Cape and doing an amazing safari, this could be the trip for you. People who sign up will also get access to Christine Elder's entire library of courses and workshops worth thousands of dollars. What a great deal. If it sounds like a trip for you, give us a call. And now, on to the show. Welcome back to Naturally Adventurous. This is Charlie. Following some very concerned messages from some of our Patreons about the whereabouts of my co-host, I'm very happy to let everybody know that he's safe and well and joining me on the podcast today. Welcome back to Naturally Adventurous, Ken Behrens. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for having me, Charlie. I really appreciate this opportunity (laughs) to appear on your podcast. You're alive and well. I am. I am. I've been having natural adventures all over the place. <laughs> it's been a while. It certainly has been a while. Yeah, it's been a, a busy spell for both of us, I guess. Um, you've managed to be more active on the podcast than me. I've actually met you twice since we last recorded a podcast. <laughs> Whoa. It's just, which is kind That's of weird. That's quite, quite a fact. Seems we didn't see each other for, for like... <laughs> I guess we, uh, so Ken was, uh, I, I guess our last podcast was a, a general one about Cambodia, where you mentioned that you were guiding some folks who you were in Thailand with as well. But while you were in Northern Thailand with those folks, we actually met up for a bit of birding and also a spot of lunch, which was rather nice. Yeah, that coffee was amazing. I, st- I, I got to get some of that next time we, we cross paths. <laughs> So often on the Thailand tours, we often pass through Chiang Mai. So you were asking me about recommendations for a, a lunch spot. So I told you one of my favorite spots and I was also free that day. So got a free lunch out of tropical birding, which was nice. Yeah, that was an amazing place. Amazing salads. <laughs> as good as any kind of California little boutique uh, restaurant, right? Yeah, no, it's great. Anyway, so on the last episode, we did a WhatsApp episode um, about Cambodia, more like a free form. And today we're going to get a little bit deeper into some of the sightings that you made. So we're going to do your top three sightings from your Cambodia trip. Um, and also because I've been there a few times, I also want to put a few of my top sightings in. So I'm going to do my top two sightings. So we're going to sandwich these. So we'll start off with yours. But before we, we kick off, um, do, do you want to let us know where you've been in uh, in this hiatus? Since we recorded an episode together, I, I've been all over Southeast Asia and with some stop, stopovers in East Asia as well. Um, I've I've been back in the States, obviously, for most of the later part of the spring. 
And I got it a trip in Texas, which we'll probably chat about at some point. Although Texas has already got a pretty Texas-sized coverage already, but maybe we'll maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more. <laughs> uh, good to be back down there. Um, and now I'm yeah I'm just back home, and I'm basically bunkered down writing this African wildlife habitats book, the the follow-up volume to the habitats of the whole world guide that we did together along with our friends Ian and Phil. So we that book has proven so popular that we're doing follow-up volumes focused on individual continents. So the, the deadline for text submission is coming up very soon. And so I'm really in like intense writing mode, just basically waking up every morning and going straight to the computer and just writing all day. So it's fun, but it's... Uh, I'm hoping to give you a few breaks from your writing by uh, having a little chat and recording the podcast because <laughs> um, I'm also at home. Well, actually, I'm in the UK right now. Uh, my my father was a little ill, so I came back to take care of him for about three weeks. So, um, yeah, I've set up my little office space here and uh, in between sort of gardening and cleaning the house and hanging out with my dad, I'll be, uh, I'll be around to to record some podcasts. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we can uh, get through some of the uh, adventures that would have been undocumented so far. <laughs> so I, I remember at some point, I think you were in the UK for Christmas and I was here in the States. And we commented that this may never happen again, that we're both in our sort of countries of birth. And here we are again. Here we are again. I hope, it, I hope we don't make a habit of it. Oh my. Yeah, that would be scary. But certainly spring is not such a bad time to be here. All the birds are singing and uh, yeah, I've been out doing a little bit of birding. I'm sure it's been nice over there too. Oh yeah, it's you definitely feel when you live through the winter in a place like this, you feel like you've really earned spring. It's a, a little bit frustrating <laughs> to be sitting here writing this book rather than going birding. Yeah. I, I mean, I would just be going birding every day if I if I didn't have to finish this book. But uh, that's all right. It's uh, all good stuff. Great. So are you ready to get into it? Let's do it. Okay, we're going to start with your number three, which is a bird I've also seen quite recently. Um, fairly recently discovered bird. Very specific habitat requirement, very sort of limited range, quite a cool bird. And that is the Mekong wagtail. Yeah, there's a, a bit of a theme with the birds that I went to look for in Cambodia and pretty much all three of these highlights, which I'm going to mention, which is these are the kind of birds where... It, if you first flip through a guide, you might not notice them, but when you've done trip after trip after trip to Asia and you haven't seen these things, they really start to nag you. So Cambodia just has quite a few of these like highly rare localized types of things that, you know, there's just, it's not a place where if you've done a lot of travel, you're going to see a large number of new things, but there are some, some really cool kind of odds and ends in Cambodia. And this is one of them. Yeah. This wagtail, it's pretty much it's like a river specialist and it just lives along the Mekong River and then I guess some of its major tributaries. And, and that's quite odd. I mean, there's no other wagtail in the world that is just so exclusively riverine, right? Uh, so it's it's a very weird kind of niche habitat specialist. It's also weird because there are no other like resident wagtails down in, in like Southern Southeast Asia. Wagtails are things that visit during the boreal winter and in winter down there, and then they migrate away and leave. But this thing is just resident along the Mekong River. It's also 
very similar in appearance to the African pied wagtail, which we're both so familiar yeah. with back in Africa. And that's that's kind of odd. So it makes me wonder, like, well, you know, do they share a kind of a common origin or what's the story there? However, the African pied wagtail is not like a habitat specialist. It's just all over the place, like in cities and villages and dams and just all kinds of sort of open habitats. So anyways, there were there were a lot of things that made me really want to see this wagtail, even though on a first flip through a field guide of birds of Southeast Asia, it might not jump out at you as, oh my goodness, I have to see the, the Mekong wagtail. So yeah, prior to guiding a trip down there, I had a few extra days in Cambodia, as we chatted about earlier. And th- this was one of the things I fit in was a visit to this area called Krati and did a boat trip on the Mekong. There's something about the Mekong. It's just one of these rivers that has a certain cachet. <laughs> Some of that might come to like Vietnam War movies for Americans. We, you know, we hear this name a lot. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's just got, you know, there's there's some other big rivers in the world that people have barely heard of, but it's like everybody knows the Mekong. The Mekong is just one of these, one of these yeah. cool big rivers, and uh, it is it is quite a quite a magnificent huge river, big broad river, and then there are these little islands in the middle of it, um, kind of like what you see in the Amazon, I guess, like little islands covered in scrub, and little little like exposed rocks, and. Yeah, that's the habitat of this, you know, very striking black and white wagtail. And, you know, once I got to the right place and got on a boat, it was very easy to see. It's quite common and conspicuous, just extremely localized. And I'll also throw in for good measure. uh, Yeah, I didn't even realize this when I set this trip up, but the same area actually has this um, Irrawaddy dolphin or Irrawaddy river dolphin, which I'd never seen before. And it's, it's one of these weird, I guess they're both marine and on rivers, which is quite odd in itself. And it's this kind of big, pale, slightly pinkish dolphin. And uh, that, that was just a thrill to see those. We just saw them at incredibly close range, just sticking these their big rounded heads up out of the water. They have this kind of big rounded head and then like a long snout. Um, really awesome animals. So... I think that that would appeal to anybody, even if you weren't that much into the wagtail. The dolphins were amazing. That's actually the entire local tourist industry there is is based around the dolphins. When I when yeah. I first set up this trip, yeah. I was kind of amazed that the local agent w- was so easily able to arrange a boat. And that, then I realized, oh, okay, this is basically a dolphin boat that they just divert over to find the wagtail, and then you go look at dolphins afterwards. So, yeah, very very cool experience. Um, good bird. Good. Uh, Mammal, I guess you've done that trip a few times as well. I have, yeah, as part of a, a Cambodia trip that I did many years ago. So I was also very excited to see those. Um, so yeah, it was a, it's a cool mammal and a cool bird on the same trip. You know, I've also seen the Mekong wagtail from Thailand. Really? Yeah. Just, just so, barely gets into Thailand, right? Yeah, it barely gets into Thailand. There's just like you know, two little spots in the very, very far east. But I, I did a Thailand tour, which was like a you know two maybe a sixteen day tour, something like that. And I did a, an extra week in the south. And one lady, she wanted to do an extra week. So and she asked me if there was any other cool places to to go around in Thailand. And I, I thought I was thinking, you know, no, very few people go out east birding to the far east of Thailand. 
So I planned a little, you know, five, maybe like a six-day itinerary heading out east to go and get the the wagtail and also the uh, the great thickney. There's a spot, um, this big kind of big thick-billed uh, shorebird there. So we went out to look for those. Yeah, it was very uh, it's very cool experience. But the place that we went to see them, you were looking across the river, the Mekong River, into Laos. It was along the border with Laos, and I actually saw the wagtail and the thickney in Laos rather than Thailand. So I, I, I've seen both of those on a Thailand trip, but <laughs> I didn't actually see them in Thailand. I'll check your eBird records just to make sure that the integrity of that is is uh, all suitable. Yeah. No, there was a, there was a little there was an eBird hotspot on the other side of the river, so I put it on a, as a Laos as a Laos record. I suspect some fanatical Thai listers would kind of uh, squeak that onto their Thai list. Yeah, get a massive speaker and see if they can sort of uh, call it back across. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was a very strange uh, experience. And and also you, you were also mentioning in the last episode about the Saras crane that you went to see that was now only seen in Cambodia. This kind of rare subspecies but i actually went to see a very small population of those in thailand that has been uh, reintroduced well it sounds like that southeastern thailand uh adventure could be a whole episode in itself yeah it was it was it was quite interesting yeah but yeah it's a cool cool bird the wagtail certainly so i guess we'll move on to your number two lifetime cambodian bird sighting <laughs> which is something i didn't uh i didn't have time to go see i've also seen it quite a bit in India, but never seen it in Southeast Asia. And this is the red-headed vulture. Yeah. So the ground agent that we use or, or used to use, they set up these little conservation projects. They had one for the Florican, you know, with the, the local people, you know, training them as guides and and protecting the habitat there. Um, and there was another conservation project, which was a vulture restaurant. Vultures in Asia have been almost wiped out. I mean, there's there's a few left in India, but I mean, almost across their entire range, they've gone down by, you know, 99%, whatever. But there's a small population in a very remote area of Cambodia where they have three species, the, the white rump, the slender build, and the, and the red-headed. And we actually went as part of uh, one of the tours that we did to see this vulture restaurant. And the, the reason that the vultures became so rare and were wiped out from most places is the use of this kind of uh, diclofenac, I think, isn't it? It's like a sort of uh, veterinary right. drug. Antibiotic, that just, right? The, the vultures, yeah, um, that they, they can't handle. You know, I think the livers just pack in. You know, it's illegal now, but people have stock, stockpiled it and it's still having bad effects. But they use, um, you know, unaffected cows there and they put a, a, a carcass out and the tourists go along and, and they're in, in a little hide. And all these uh, vultures come in and, and feed on the carcass, like right in front of you, and you get photos and stuff. So it was, it was a very cool experience. But it's kind of like it looks a lot like the lappet-faced vulture from from Africa. It's this really big, hulking body with this these red flaps of skin on the head and this huge, stocky bill. Have you seen this bird? Maybe maybe in India or what? Yeah, in India. I don't think I've ever seen one on the ground. I, I've just seen them flying overhead. Right. So that must be incredibly impressive uh, on the ground right in front of you. But I think the same as like in Africa, you would get the lappet-faced vulture and, uh, and the white-backed vultures. And the lappet-faced has got this big, strong bill that can actually tear open carcasses, like the, the thick hide of, a, of, a, of an animal. And then all the other smaller white-backed vultures have to wait until, you know, 
this uh, dominant vulture has come in and, and opened up the carcass. So it was just a very cool thing. I mean, you, you, I felt like I was on a sort of African safari, but with these incredibly rare Asian species. So that was very neat. And I think we went in at dawn in the dark. We were actually camping nearby there. They set up this whole camp and they were cooking for us. And we had these nice big safari tents and it was all very well done. But uh, in quite a remote area, and there was, you know, we saw a few deer around there, some muntjacks, and there was golden jackals around and some rare primates, silvery langures and stuff. So it was just a little, I remember you were talking about um, that none of these big, you know, this kind of megafauna that there used to be. But, uh, you know, there are some places where there's a little bit of the original nature left. So it felt very remote and it was a very cool experience to go in in the dark and wait for all these um, vultures to come down and start feasting on this um, this carcass. I bet. So I just checked. Um, diclofenac is an anti-inflammatory drug. So I guess it was used a lot right. in cattle, and then it would accumulate in these vultures. Um, quite quite the tragic conservation tale. How close were you to these vultures? How I mean, how wary are they Ooh. when you're in a hide? They were they were quite wary, eh? They told us to be extremely quiet and just and and you. But as soon as they as soon as they're down and start feeding, you can do anything. You know, they they they're just totally. They get a taste of the blood and they just want more. Maybe thirty meters, like a, like a hundred feet, hundred feet yeah. to one hundred and fifty feet, maybe. Yeah, pretty close. Yeah, yeah, close enough for you know good photos. Yeah, love to do it sometime. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite a cool. Yeah, and you know, of course, I'm I'm so into my threatened species but i mean all, all these are like critically endangered species it was really quite a quite a rush and and it was nice that you know our visit was was paying to kind of feed these birds you know safe food to try and boost their numbers up a little bit so i i it seems to be working and that population i think is is growing slightly but it was right on the edge of being wiped out and it was such a a disjunct population you know miles from india so uh yeah, it's quite a cool conservation story. Okay, let's move on to your next sighting, which is quite a small bird. I was quite interested to see this one on there. It's a very, it's a bird with a very odd distribution. The, the Burmese nuthatch occurs, you know, through Myanmar and very spottily through Thailand to Cambodia. But uh, that's certainly, um, yeah, an interesting species. Yeah, well, remember my comment about the common theme of all these birds is that they're things that were just nagging me that I had never seen before. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the first time you flip through a Southeast Asia field guide, you see a bunch of nuthatches. And the ones that catch your eye are basically beautiful nuthatch, which is really just exceptionally unusual in appearance. Yeah. And giant nuthatch, the world's biggest nuthatch. Yep. I mean, those those catch your eye. And, and giant nuthatch is something that we saw on my last trip there in Thailand, but I've seen that quite a few times. But this Burmese nuthatch, it's you know somewhat of a generic looking nuthatch, but I just had never seen it before. I think the scientific name is actually neglecta. So and yep, and sometimes it it's called uh -huh. neglected nuthatch. And and I, I was uh -huh. starting to understand the name. It's like it just <laughs> slips through in these this like e ecological niche where it's not seen very often in most frequently visited places, it seems to be just at very low density, even the places where it is found. So it, it reached a point where I really wanted to stop neglecting this nuthatch and I really wanted to see it <laughs> and uh, had a good, uh, well, a good sort of 
general guide and local local guide there who both knew the bird and I told them I really want to find this bird and you know so often a theme another theme of our like top lifetime or whatever trip sightings is something that we missed and then eventually caught up with right so not only yep. had I missed this bird my whole life until I went to Cambodia we spent like a day and a half looking for this thing and didn't find it <laughs> and I was just starting to think no I can't I can't miss this nuthatch again like this this area where I was looking for it is this Tamatboy area that we we chatted about last week a bit. It's up in kind of north central Cambodia, pretty remote area with this deciduous kind of savanna or forest. And it's just like prime area for this, this Burmese nuthatch. You know, like it's probably not more common anywhere else, you know. It's not like there's somewhere else you can go. I mean, I've missed this thing in, in Burma. I've, I've missed it in Thailand. But yeah, finally, so finally we found one, kind of heard it making this little rattling call and it kind of cautiously approached Had a very brief view, one or two pictures, and it absolutely vanished. So it was, it was simultaneously frustrating, but also uh, quite satisfying. And then as often happens the next morning, the sort of last morning birding in this Tamatbui area, we just, we found one that I think must've been nesting. And it, it was just ridiculously close. I mean, it was just like a, a couple meters away and just kind of doing the whole nuthatch thing, walking upside down, down a tree right in front of me. And uh, that was, that was fantastic. I just, I just soaked this bird in. Uh, I really like nuthatches. Um, ever since I was a, like 12 years old, I've just loved nuthatches. And I, I really would like to see all of them in the world eventually. Yeah. So this, I'm, I'm one closer I don't understand this bird. I don't know why it's so rare, and I don't really understand why you know why it's why it's only found in these in these very few places. Because I mean, it, even in Thailand, there's like maybe three spots, and out of those, it's just not anywhere, you know. And then in Myanmar, in some places, and then, like you say, in Tamatboy area. So when you look on a on an eBird map of the species they have all these little kind of little pink squares and then you get this like dark purple square just around tamat boy and that seems to be a real important spot for it but i don't understand its habitat requirement you know whether it likes this i guess it likes this more kind of open dry deciduous forest but it i mean there, there seems to be plenty other places that look like that 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 you don't find it so it's yeah kind of exactly a very odd bird yep habitat enigma without a doubt that was part of the appeal for me it's like what where is this bird? You know, at some point when you have missed something so many times, you want to see what kind of place it's in. Sometimes even if you don't yeah. see the actual bird, there's something satisfying about, okay, well, now I, I'm starting to get some idea what its habitat is, but it's it's a weird one. I mean, I almost wonder if it was, it's just like outcompeted by by other nuthatches or other birds and it's kind of headed towards extinction. You know, one of those type of, of relict species. Don't know. It looks very much like the Indian nuthatch. Yep. And we actually saw that recently in India. We're going to be chatting more about that, I'm sure, in a future podcast. But we, we saw it in a place that it was a very disjunct distribution as well. So even in India, where the majority of the range kind of in this, in central India, and then it had this tiny little kind of relic population. So it, it seems to be sort of doing the same thing, kind of just skipping certain, uh, certain spots. But it, it must have – but it seems to be naturally sort of uncommon – and um, and it seems to have a pretty like specific 
habitat requirement. I, I guess when you think about biogeography, there, there's always this kind of becoming wetter and then drier, wetter and drier dynamic over mm. time. Certainly in Africa, that's one of the major phenomena that's driven biodiversity. And I think the same is true in sort of South Asia and Southeast Asia. So I, I, I'm just imagining like these, you know, the range is like expanding and shrinking, expanding and shrinking. And, and this is something that maybe yeah. was sort of left behind or like the current climate just isn't optimal for it. I think Southeast Asia is probably actually wetter than it might have been at some points historically. So maybe this bird was really common at some point and sense. then yeah. kind of shrunk down to the sort of drier refugia. India is a lot drier, so you can understand how some of these things are like more common in India. Well, it's a moment we've all been waiting for. It's Charlie's <laughs> number one lifetime Cambodian. Is this your number one bird sighting or just straight up wildlife? Uh, I'm trying to think about Sony cool mammals. Yeah, I think it, it, it's up there, right? But I mean, you know, we've we've got to share these things fairly. So you know, your number one might also have been my number one if if I <laughs> well, there's... I could have chosen first. <laughs> True. So the big winner is the white winged duck. This is just an incredibly rare bird everywhere. Um, yeah, I, I'm eager to hear about it. So it's kind of similar to the last bird in that it's it's got this wider distribution, but it's just found at very few places, and um, and it ranges all all the way over to kind of northeast India, where I guess you might have seen it before. Yeah, only and place then, I've seen it. Yeah, and then down through kind of very patchily in Thailand and and Cambodia, and then even down into uh, down to Sumatra, and it likes kind of like flooded like swamp forest but it, it's very very shy i think it's it's kind of crepuscular or even i think they even feed at night sometimes by by moonlight i heard so it's and it's totally unlike any other duck that i know it's kind of uh, it's very big and long black body this white speckled head and it requires really really pristine undisturbed habitat it needs to be undisturbed by people as well it's quite a big duck, you know, it would be quite a nice meal for people. So, I mean, I guess it's been hunted widely as well. So it's, Yeah, almost the so, size of a goose. Yeah, so, you know, it's very habitat specific. It's it's, it's vulnerable to hunting. And, uh, yeah, it's just a very odd bird. So, I planned a, a tour. I think I did one Cambodia trip and I was planning another one and looking at the, the, the sites that were available. And then I saw that, that this bird was being seen at this location called Okoki. And it was a little bit more humid forest than than Tamat Bowie. It was, you know, it was maybe like semi-evergreen type stuff. But I think there were some other birds. I think your number one bird was also there, and I saw that very well there. But um, they had several of these forest blinds over these little water holes, which... You, you know you went to a place called uh, ATT, and Trepeng Tamor. Yeah. You know what Trepeng means? Isn't Trepeng like a, a dam, basically? Not a dam. It's like a like a lake or maybe like a water body. But in Tamat Bawi, you get all these little, small little water holes dotted around the around the forest. And they call these also Trepengs. So, uh, yeah, we had, there was a couple of blinds over different Trepengs. And we went in there. 
I'm trying to think when we went. I think it was maybe like afternoon. And I think they often would come in in the late afternoon. And it was made of like um, like palm fronds. Just like a little kind of, uh, you know, rectangular shape. West Papua style? West Papua style, exactly. Yeah, it looked just like one of those. And we were all sat inside this, in this little makeshift blind, hoping for, for your number one bird or also this bird. And there was other birds coming in as well. I mean, there was red jungle fowl walking around the edges. I think there was a, a Siamese fireback. This beautiful pheasant came in. There was wild boar coming in to drink. Um, so it was quite exciting. You know, there were some really quality birds and some some cool mammals as well coming in. But the thing that we really wanted to see was this uh, was this white-winged duck. And uh, I think there was about six of us in there. The windows that we had, they were about six inches wide, you know, with like palm fronds around the outside. See, you didn't have great visibility. You could just see kind of straight. So you were always like craning your neck and looking up and looking at other people's holes to see yeah. you know, if, if you got a better angle there. West Papua style. West Papua, exactly. West, West Papua style. And, and I heard this heavy flap of wings, you know, and then this huge plop in the water. And I'm looking around, looking around, and then I look just straight in front of me and maybe 10 meters away, maybe 30, 40 feet away, close, really close. I just looked out and I just saw this big, fat, black duck just looking at me and it was it's obviously knew something was up it landed and everybody inside the, the, the tension you know you could cut the air with a knife and we just kind of just nobody moved at all just and then we just all like looking just freezing and then just very slowly after you know 20 30 seconds this this duck just starts to relax a little bit and then swimming a little bit in the water and then moving around. And we we must have watched it for like an hour. And it was absolutely amazing. You know, we, we started taking pictures once it, it chilled out a little bit. And it was preening. It sat on a little island preening. And then it was kind of dabbling, um, feeding around and then sort of uh, walking around the edge. And it, it gave us such a show. It was amazing. Because I think when you see it in India, often it's at, at some distance. You know, you're seeing it through a scope birds that are swimming away or flying away you know but this was just like in your face a real proper wild endangered species that you know it was just it felt like it was a real privilege to see it yeah so it was a very very cool sighting i understand the adrenaline of seeing that bird because i i had a great <laughs> sighting in uh basically on foot basically spent a whole morning just on foot in this kind of swamp forest in northeast india and and eventually kind of stumbled upon one well didn't exactly stumble i mean we were basically checking a bunch of ponds where they are and, but we kind of came around a corner and i think the like the park guards kind of backed up and gestured and we were kind of like creeping around a corner and seeing this yeah. thing and yeah just very exciting because of its incredible rarity and and shyness too as you describe if i'm really honest about this bird's appearance if you plopped it down with a bunch of like scruffy domesticated muscovy it would fit in pretty well yeah it's 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 got a bit of muscovy about it eh? it's got that sort of <laughs> kind of slightly overweight you know extra extra large kind of speckled weird looking like duck. random yeah. white speckles on a blackish bird and uh yeah it's but it does it does have a beautiful wing pattern when it flies for sure and uh 
yeah, for for sure. We're just just knowing how rare it is adds a lot of excitement. I can imagine it'd be great to just watch one at length. Uh, the one that I saw had a pretty good view, but it flew off within about thirty seconds. Now it was very cool, and I I think the place that we saw it in Cambodia is maybe not really accessible now. I think there was some security issues, but um, I know for a for a while. After we were there, people weren't able to go there. So it was, um, I feel very lucky that we were able to go there. And, and again, that was another place we were camping. And uh, there was cool stuff at night. You know, there was um, frog mares and oriental bay owls and a whole bunch of different owls and cool mammals and stuff. It, it really felt like pristine wilderness. You know, it was, it was, it was a very cool place. So... The moment that everybody's been waiting for, Ken's number one bird from his recent Cambodia trip. This is this is maybe the reason a lot of people want to go birding in Cambodia. It's maybe the top bird that you know, the top of people's lists, yeah. The the giant ibis. So time for confessions. Like would this have been your number one if if I hadn't already staked it out? It would have been close. But um, I I did actually mention that yeah, when I had this duck I've seen giant ibis quite a few times now, but um my best sighting was actually at the same place we had the uh, the the white winged wood duck. So um, yeah, and we got it. We got it really, really close. I got my best ever photo. I think there. It's, um, very, yeah, I saw very, very cool I saw place. that picture, and, and I definitely didn't get pictures like that. But uh, I was wondering how you got that picture. But now now I have the explanation. Having a no, West yeah. Papua style hide it can be a very good thing sometimes. Helps. Yeah. So so this was. As you say, this was the bird I wanted to see in Cambodia. And this is one, actually, when the first time you flip through a Southeast Asia book, unlike the nuthatch, this thing does jump out at you. It is it is called oh, yeah. giant ibis, and it is literally a giant ibis. I mean, it's an ibis that is like the size of a, a stork, basically. Um, <laughs> it's just like twice the size of a typical ibis. You know, we think of ibises as these kind of like little little hunchback, like medium-sized type of things. Um, this thing is a monster. And not only that, it it used to be quite widespread in Southeast Asia. I think it even got down into the Sunda region yeah. uh, originally. But it is, I think it is a critically endangered bird now. It's down to a couple hundred individuals. And I think it's virtually restricted to like northern Cambodia. I think it's been recorded recently in Vietnam. There's some recent records in Thailand, I believe. But it's just a very, very rare bird. I think it's been hunted a lot. It's very shy. And uh, this... This Tamat boy is is one of the, the only places you can see this bird. I guess you were in even more remote places up on the northeast and saw it, but for most visitors, Tamat boy is the the place to go to see this bird. When I was planning my time uh, in Southeast Asia, I had a trip I was guiding that was going to be in Northwest Thailand, and then afterwards we were going to Cambodia for a few days. And so it seemed quite logical that, okay, I just add a few days and go try to see this ibis and the other birds, you know, things I was looking for. But the, the ground agent in Cambodia told me, well, it's pretty risky because by the time, you know, you're talking about it's late March, it could rain anytime. If you get a heavy rain, the bird can basically just disappear because there's a lot of different water holes it can go to. 
and or you just can't access areas where it is. Um, he, he was really worried that this would happen. And I, I was thinking, oh man, do I risk it? Finally, I decided, nope, like I, I want to see this bird. So I'm going to basically <laughs> come early, come to Southeast Asia early. I flew into Bangkok and then I flew over to uh, Siam Reap and I did some travels there. And then I flew back to Thailand for that, guiding that trip and then back to Cambodia. So I don't know. I know. I mean, maybe I still would have seen it if I'd gone later, but I, I didn't want to take a risk. So this, this bird was just, I really, really wanted to see it. It was another one where the anticipation definitely built over a couple birding sessions of not seeing it. I guess it was, well, we basically went out the first afternoon after driving out to Tamatboi, which is, it's a pretty long drive. It's a pretty remote place. You sleep in this like very rustic little eco lodge out kind of next to a village village kind of feels like the end of the road um not even a, not even a paved road right it's just like a gravel road so yeah. it's the end of a gravel road and then you drive a kilometer off into the bush there's this little eco lodge and then to look for this ibis you're just basically driving these tiny little like two tracks off into the deciduous forest and then at some point some mysterious point you'll stop and then you'll walk I guess that's essentially as, as close as you can drive to one of these trepangs. And then you, you're on foot and you walk up to these trepangs, right? And and every time you approach one, you're hoping there might be an ibis there, like feeding. So you're like very quietly approaching, you know, peeking around bushes and hoping. And so we basically did this the whole first afternoon and got nothing. No giant ibis had one distant white-shouldered ibis, which is another another amazing bird, big, unusual ibis, but no, not even a whiff of this uh, giant ibis. So I was definitely getting a bit nervous. You know, I I, had, I would <laughs> invested quite a bit in trying to see this bird. So the next morning, these guys were basically said, "Well, we should leave it for." And I was thinking, four? Like, what on earth? <laughs> you know, the sun didn't even come up until like a, a bit after six. And I was just, I was thinking, why do we go at four? But, and the, the really nice guys, but not super fluent in English and not able to, you know, completely communicate why this was necessary. But I just figured, <laughs> okay, the, these guys, they know what they're doing. They, this is their bread and butter. When people come here, this is what yeah. they want to see. Just do what they say. So, Okay. So I, you know, I sort of woke up at 3.30, had some coffee, headed out at 4. We basically drove the better part of an hour into the forest. And, and I'm talking on just like tiny little tracks, right? So it's like pitch black. <laughs> We're in this land cruiser driving through the forest uh, nighttime. Finally, we the car stops. It's still pitch black. I mean, it's still like night. And then we get out and we walk for like half an hour or something. And basically these guys plan was just to get to like the prime area pre really before there's any light at all, because I guess if you approach and it's already a little bit light, the Ibis are really prone to just fly away. Yeah. Um, but if you're in there in position, like in the dark, then they, they might stay. <laughs> that's the that's the theory. 
So finally, there's just like a tiny hint of light in the eastern sky. And right about when that happens, we hear this crazy vocalization out in the forest. <laughs> you know, you and I, we both usually study bird vocalizations a lot before we're guiding a trip in a place, right? But yeah. I wasn't guiding in this area. This is just for fun. So I hadn't studied the vocalizations. I had no idea what these ibis sounded like, either the giant or the white-shouldered. <laughs> and I just heard this crazy vocalization off in the dark. And like, I'd never, never even imagined something like this, certainly not coming from an ibis. But I actually didn't know which ibis it was. I, I thought it was white-shouldered. And the guys, again, really nice guys, not super communicative, and it also like you're whispering and you're trying not to scare anything. So like, I'm okay. I'm thinking this is white shoulder divis that we just heard. Awesome. Awesome. You know, I had a, a brief view of one the previous day. I, I was very keen to like see it better, get closer. And the guys were like, yeah, we stay, you go, you go. Because if there's three people, it's just way more likely you're going to scare a bird. So that was cool. Yeah. All right. So I basically creep up slowly I'm scanning the tops of trees because I know these, especially like dead, dead snags sticking out. I know these ibis like to roost at night in those kind of settings. Finally, I spot these ibis on top of uh, a dead snag. Awesome. I kind of settle in. I actually had my scope. And I kind of crouch down, set up my scope and I'm looking at this ibis. I mean, it's still very dark, right? And But as it starts to slowly get a little bit light i'm looking at this ibis and i'm thinking this is not white shouldered ibis this Wait is a giant ibis <laughs> of course the, the local guys knew that all, all along you know they heard the vocalization they knew this was giant ibis i just hadn't quite caught on so it was like right. this delightful realization that oh this is this is the bird i came here to see and i'm <laughs> i'm sitting here at like on the first light of dawn hitting this ibis and i'm sitting there studying it through a scope uh it was just you know great kind of surprise and satisfaction uh, an amazing view through the scope i was really glad i brought the scope and then to cap it all there were three different giant ibis there and they just kept making this incredible vocalization i described we'll use this as the natural sound because i can't really describe great. it do it justice but it just, to me, sounds like just such a wild, crazy kind of vocalization. And I've I've never heard anything like it from an ibis. I don't think any other ibis calls like this. It's really, it just kind of brought home what a distinct, unusual bird this is. And I, I managed to creep a little bit closer. I got a few sort of distant pictures, just studied it through my scope for like 45 minutes. And eventually, I think it was just light enough that they basically all flew off to go feed and as they flew off they made this kind of rollicking ringing call <laughs> and it was just oh man I, I mean i was just i just felt this like glow of just like it was just magic you know just being deep in that forest at dawn and encountering this bird and hearing it it, it was you know if we redid our like top 10 bird sighting lifetime bird sightings this It'd would probably fun. probably make it yeah, it's a very atmospheric call. I don't remember exactly what it sounded like, but I, I remember hearing it as well. I think we also did uh, like a getting there in the dark and positioning ourselves kind of thing. But those local guides are really good. Eh? They really know how to find these birds and where they are. Yeah, I was I was impressed. They they know their business for sure. 
We also saw them a, a couple of times at these tropengs, but it, it was always very tense, and you, you had to really creep up and and like peering through these little gaps in the trees. And it's very easy, you know, just tramp on a little twig or something, and make and everything would just fly away, you know. But you know, you had to just really kind of creep up. And a couple of times we saw them pretty well at, at the tropengs as well. But yeah, that pre-dawn. And and hearing them call at the at the roosting sites, uh, it's it's a pretty pretty special experience. The birds that I saw, I don't think I would have seen them at all if I'd been with a big group. You know, they were just so wary, and you have to walk through this kind of like treacherously dry stick strewn forest in the dark. It's very hard not to make noise. So yeah. for that one, I was I was happy to be alone and just be able to kind of stealthily sneak up on these things. You know, there's something yeah. so exciting when you are in pursuit of some wildlife that is that shy, right? Where you we've talked yeah. about this many times. Like you just get into this flow where you're just in like hunter mode. It's yep. so exciting. Yep. It, it really is. Now, awesome! I'm glad you got it. I remember you've been you've been sort of. Uh teasing me with this uh, he said oh you had a pretty epic en- encounter so i'm glad that i've uh, finally heard it well i don't know it, it maybe it's not the world's most adventurous story but it's certainly on my side it felt epic it was uh, it was very exciting and i was very grateful to finally connect with that bird and, and you know we spent another couple of days birding there didn't see or hear another one so it definitely really? felt like wow. one of these things that very easily could have missed yeah well i guess we'll we'll wrap it up since we worked our way through uh year two and my three highlights or favorite sightings from Cambodia. Yeah, it's good to good to chat again. Hopefully we'll be doing more of these in the next couple of weeks. Thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, we'll play out with some of my recordings of this amazing giant ibis.